Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve salatu ve selamu ala şerefil enbiya'i vel mursalin Muhammedur Resulullahi sallallahu aleyhi ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem tesliman kathiran kathiran. Fama ba'du, we continue with our series of khutab called The Way Forward. This is the sixth in that series. Most of us, especially Muslims, are historically illiterate. Meaning, we don't understand history. We don't know our own history. And our cherry-picking approach to history ensures illiteracy. However, our lives won't change until we learn lessons from history and break out of the vicious cycles that we are caught up in. We don't learn the lessons because we can't differentiate between critiquing and critical analysis and criticizing. We cannot differentiate between criti- critiquing and critical analysis and, criti- and criticizing. We have no capacity to objectively analyze incidents in history without either hero-worshipping those involved or trashing them. People who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. That is what we are doing today, both globally and locally in our organizations. We do the same with each other and have this insane unspoken rule. For me to love you and be your friend, you must agree with everything I say. We must develop the capacity to not only accept dissent, but to encourage it and learn to disagree without being disagreeable. We must not only accept those who disagree with us, but value them because they help us to look at another side of our pet theory. Without that, it is very easy to blind ourselves to reality until we meet it face to face and realize that it is the face of Malakul Mouth. Here is a short history lesson. Since the late 7th century, Muslims have lived in empires and have imbibed the culture of feudal subjugation. First the Banu Umayya, 661 to 750, then the Banu Abbas, 750 to 1258 CE. After that arose three great Muslim empires, the Safavid Empire in Persia, which ended in 1736, the Mughals in India, which ended in 1857, and the Ottomans, which ended in 1927. Today, most Muslims live in democratic, non-Muslim countries. The dynamics of society, opportunities for development, citizens' rights and obligations have all changed. If we still want to live in the fantasy of empire, we will be discarded. It is time to wake up and face the reality of our existence today. That reality is far better, that today our condition is far better than it was. Let me share my perception through the lenses of political science and psychology. Emotional maturity is the process of changing our mindset from Others are responsible for me, too. I am responsible for myself and others. So, are we adults 
are still children. In transactional analysis, Eric Byrne calls it the parent-child ego state. The parent is authority and the child is powerless and blames authority for whatever happens to him. It is always someone else's fault. To mature emotionally is to break out of the cycle and become adults. Most people are physically adults but emotionally still children looking to the parent, which is outside authority, to solve their problems. So let's do a self-check. Let me ask you, what is your greatest, most urgent desire as you sit here today? Don't say Janna. Janna happens after you die. In this life, what is the right, right now, name one thing which you want right now. What would it be? Job, car, house, marriage, holiday, umrah. What is it? Things for ourselves? Now ask yourself. All that you, the th thoughts you are in your mind, are those things for yourself or for others, for the Ummah? And that's why they say the difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. The sign of emotional maturity is to think of others. The finest example of this were the Anbiya Alayhimussalam, the Prophets. They lived for people and they died for people. At the end of his life, when Rasulullah was passing away, Jibreel came to inform him that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to meet him. At that time, Rasulullah did not ask him about the future of his family. He asked him, Ya Jibreel, what will happen to my Ummah? Concern for others is the sign that we have matured. Concern means action. Without action, it's only words. Useless, powerless and worthless. So the next question is, if you claim to be concerned about the Ummah, what are you doing about it? Now, we had a self-test, a self-check test last week. The 25-mile march for ceasefire in Palestine. It was an opportunity to see our faces in the mirror. You know if you participated or not. And you know why and you know why not. However, let me remind you that the march was organized by Jewish Voices for Peace under the leadership of a college student. A young woman by the name of Molly Aronson. Molly Aronson. 
write that in big gold letters and stick it on your wall and look at it every day. Molly Aronson. Ask why. Why did she do this? In material terms, if you think about this, given who she is, what happens in Philistine and what happens in Palestine and Gaza makes no difference to her. Absolutely zero difference to her. And doing this resulted in paying a very heavy price. Yet, she did it knowingly. So on the Day of Judgment, when she and we will be asked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what did you do? She will have an answer. Now what will be, what will the answer be for those who did not participate? This is what growing up means. That is what true freedom and dignity means. To step out of our comfort zone and do something for someone when we are not personally affected by that hardship. Our parenting, oppressive governments, our schooling system all contribute to delaying maturity and prolonging childish thinking and behavior. Constantinople was conquered by Mehmet II. How old was he when he conquered Constantinople? 20 years old. 20. The same age as some of your children who have free food, who live in their mom and dad's home free of rental, rent free, who have a nice cell phone paid for by daddy, bill paid for by daddy, they drive a nice car paid for by daddy, with gas paid for by daddy, And then if you meet daddy and you say, where is your son? Daddy says, I don't know. Your choice. You want to raise kids like this? Then don't blame anyone else if they grow up bodily, physically, but mentally they are still four years old. Your choice. To change our future, we must grow up. This means to simply ask one question. What can I do? And then go and do it. It means that every one of us must donate energy, thought, prayer, dua, and money to things that help us all as a community and not expect some outside authority figure, the government, the philanthropic people or institutions to do it for us. Empire and slavery ingrain the child into us, the child ego state into us. Globally, that is the state of Muslims today. We must break out and break our mental shackles and take charge of our destiny if we want to succeed. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that he blessed us so much that we can't even count his blessings. He said, وَمَا آتَاكُمْ مِنْ كُلِّ مَا أَسَالْتُمُهُ وَإِن تَعُدُّوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ لَا تُحْسُوهَا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَظَلُومٌ كَفَّارٌ He said which means, and he has granted you all that you asked him for. Uh, if you try to count Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings, you will never be able to count them. Indeed, humankind is truly unfair and totally ungrateful. They are oppressors. They are zaloom and kafar. Ask yourself, if we reflect on our thoughts about ourselves, are they mostly negative or positive? Monitor your conversation. When you speak about this country, you speak about where you live, you speak about your job, you speak about the weather, you speak about anything, political situation, economic situation, what comes out of your mouth? Negative statements or positive statements? Complaints or gratitude? What comes out of your mouth? Individually or collectively, do we consider ourselves blessed or deprived, powerful or helpless, in control of our destiny or not? The truth is that we are the architects of our own destiny. Now this is an amazingly powerful realization because it means that we have the power to change our situation anytime we choose to change it. But that will happen only if we act, not just talk about acting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us and gave us intelligence and taught us through his books and his prophets and messengers that we are free to choose, but that no choice is free. Every choice has a price tag. Every choice has a consequence. This is not even theology. This is observation, logic and reason which we see every day of our lives. And so if anyone thinks that a society that is based on the single-minded pursuit of profit at any cost can be free from the consequences of this philosophy, the surprise, surprise, we can only live surrounded by crime, misery, fear, and pain. It is only when we live by a law that was made by the one who is unaffected by our actions and who has no personal stake in it. He gains nothing from it. He loses nothing. But he made the law for our benefit. When we follow that law, only then can we be assured that the results will be positive. And that law is Al-Islam. That law is Al-Islam. That is what the Sahabi Rabi ibn Amr said to the Persian general Rustam before the Battle of Qadasiyah in November 636 CE. Rustam asked him why the Arabs had come to challenge the Sasanian Empire. What gave Rabia bin Amr the confidence to reply in the way that he replied? Ask yourself this question. What gave him the confidence to reply? Rabbi Abin Amr said, 
لإخراج العباد من عبادة العباد إلى عبادة رب العباد فصلا من جور الأديان إلى عدالة الإسلام نمبر 2 من ضيق الحياة الدنيا إلى سعة الدنيا والآخرة نمبر 3 3 reasons we came to extract the slaves from the worship of slaves to the worship of the rub of the slaves to extract them from the confusion of different religions and laws and so on into the justice of Islam and to extract them from the constriction of the life of this world into the expanse of the life of this world and the akhirah and the hereafter to justify inaction and blaming we indulge in a psychological cop out which i call globalizing problems for example muslims complain that media is hostile to us that we don't have a robust halal islamic financial system that politically we have no power and authority and so on and so forth but if you ask what can you do to change this what is the answer the answer is what can i do i am only one person we forget that everything begins with one person Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't send armies of anbiya or even teams of anbiya. He sent one man for an entire nation. And in the case of the last of them, Imam al-Anbiya, Sayyid al-Mursaleen, Muhammad Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent one man for the whole world until the end of time. One person. The individual is the most powerful unit because it is the only one on which you have power. You on yourself, me on myself. If we focus on this and correct and empower it, we empower the whole ummah. So on that topic, let me tell you about what the Ismailis, who are 12 million in the whole world, people who follow the Aga Khan and the Daudi Bohras, are only one million. Let me tell you what these communities do. They donate every person, every earning member donates 10% of their monthly earnings. We are not talking here about zakat or 2.5% of wealth the whole year. We are talking about the, their salaries, their earnings, their business earnings. They donate 10% of their monthly earnings to the community to the common fund every month and from that they fund education healthcare and entrepreneurship they run brilliant schools they give startup funding to their people and they have hospitals that's why all beggars in our countries are either shia or sunni they know ismailis or boris in the us there are 3.5 million Muslims. If each Muslim donated $5 per day to a central fund, and that's the price of a coffee, one coffee, we would have, hold your breath, we would have $6.387 billion every year. 6,387.5 million dollars per year. Almost six and a half billion. With that in hand, ask. 
What can we do with 6.5 almost billion per year? Here in this Hampton County, we have maybe 5,000 Muslims. If each Muslim, and I'm talking now about everyone, men, men, women, children. If each Muslim donated $5 a day, same price of one coffee, to a common front, we would have 9,125,000 per year. 9,125,000 per year. No need then to do any fundraising for anything. We could establish a world-class Islamic school. We could set up a VC fund, venture capital fund for startups. And we could support anyone who wants to enter politics. That is the choice which shows whether we are grown up or still children with beards. Do you want to spend more time moaning about how bad the public school system is? Or do you want to create a world-class school? It costs just $5 per day. So put up or shut up. It is this sense of personal commitment to the collective, the Ummah, that distinguished the Sahaba. We have heard the story of Rasulullah raising funds for the Ghazwa of Tabuk. He asked people to donate. Uthman bin Affan, Abdurrahman bin Awf, Umar bin Khattab, Al-Abbas bin Abi Muttalib, Talha, Sa'ad bin Ubada, Muhammad bin Maslama, Radiallahu anhum ajma'in, and others gave as much as they could. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq brought everything he owned. Rasulullah asked him, what have you left for your family? He said, Allah and his Rasul are enough for, for them, for my family. Then there was this Sahabi whose action is mentioned, but not even his name. He was not one of the leaders. He was a daily wage earner, laboring in some date garden, he came with a handful of dates. You know, hold your hand like this and fill it with dates and see how many dates there is. Maybe 15, 20, 30. He came with a handful of dates. And he presented them to Rasulullah like this and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I worked all day today and this is my earning. I have nothing else, but I would like to donate this to your fund. Rasulullah received those dates in both his hands and then he scattered them on top of all the material that was gathered there and he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jalla jalaluhu accepted all your charity because of this. Now imagine what that sahabi must have felt at the huge honor that Rasulullah gave him. What must he have felt? This happened because the Sahabi didn't say to himself, after all, Uthman and Al-Abbas and Abdurrahman ibn Awf and Umar ibn Khattab and Abu Bakr Siddiq and all of these are wealthy people. They have given so much. What difference will my one handful of dates make? So what is the point in me doing it? Instead, he would have said to himself, 
They did what they wanted to do. I must do what I see as my duty. What others do or don't do does not affect my duty. And when he did that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him through the action and words of Rasulullah in a way that he could not possibly have imagined. That is what I mean by personal commitment. That is the meaning of being free. That is what we need today if we are serious about impacting our destiny. We need moral, ethical, principled Muslims focused on the good of the nation and the world in position of positions of power. That takes tears before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the night. That takes tears before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the night. And it takes working together and money. It will happen if we grow up and decide to take charge of our destiny. The alternative is slavery. The choice is ours because it is our future that is at stake. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jala jalaluhu, to help us to do that which is pleasing to him and to save us from that which does not please him. وَصَلَّى اللَّهَ عَلَى وَسَلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ